How are most creators with degrees in creative fields, especially high art, living today? What are some of the unexpected ways they're navigating the world of uncertain arts funding, dwindling local art scenes, and the attention economy? And what might we learn from them? My name is Emma Katrovas, I'm an opera singer turned experimental performer, and I decided to find out, one artist at a time. Each creator I interview is an answer to how to live as an artist today, and there are as many answers as there are artists. If you like the idea behind this podcast, consider subscribing to the newsletter sent out on the 13th of every month. You can find all the relevant links in the description. Here's to being on the verge. And the fish were frightened. So beautiful. Whatever your religion, or in my case, lack thereof, it's hard to live in what's called the West without being surrounded by the, by now quite secular, Christmas spirit this time of year. So I thought this would be a good time to expand our horizons a little and think about some of our preconceptions about this season, and also about religion as such. Mike Miller and I met on our first day of undergraduate music studies when we were both 18. Mike studied voice as a countertenor and later organ. When I found out years after we both graduated that he had become a Protestant pastor in Texas, I was puzzled at first. He was openly gay and I had heard him complain about his conservative relatives who used the Bible to condemn who he was. But then I realized Mike had never condemned Christianity or God or religion as such. His complaints centered around how selectively people read the Bible. Now, as a pastor, he's able to put his interest in actually reading the Bible with an open and critical mind to good use. And talking to him about his life as a pastor, I realized there are many parallels between what he does as a spiritual guide and the function that artists might have as cultural guides. Now, just to be clear, our conversation does not endorse any particular religion. As you'll hear, this is more about examining one's faith, being open towards and tolerant of other people's beliefs, and always questioning, which I think are values that are also at the core of being an artist. I also tell Mike about my terrifying encounter with organized religion when I was three or four, one I would never describe to a pastor who I didn't think was open-minded, and how it left me with a lot of questions some of which I was able to ask thanks to this conversation. Mike and I also talk about the unpredictable life of a pastor, mistranslations of the Bible, myths about Christmas, and how creating things is one of the best paths towards greater spirituality, among other things. I come from a really musical family. My great-grandfather on my father's side was a theater organist. My grandmother on my father's side and her twin sister were on Broadway. They were tap dancers. They were like, you know, on the front of TV Guide magazine, like way back in the old days. I started playing things by ear on an old broken down piano that we had at home that we had inherited from my father's uncle who had passed away. 
And then I knew that I would wanted to do something with classical music um, when I went to one of my sister's choir concerts from high school when I was in third grade. And once I got to college, um, I'd studied voice and then I started studying organ with Dr. Carl Schrock. And then I started, you know, working in churches as a substitute organist because organists are becoming fewer and fewer and eventually found my way to Wichita, Kansas, and then to Houston, Texas, where I've done some music stuff down here. And then finding the church that I'm at right now in Houston, Texas has sort of been the place that has led me into ministry where I am. Music is, is still a really important part of that. I still do a lot of music ministry, but right now at my church, my focus is a lot more of the pastoral side of things. I just remember you were this person that had incredible energy and that seemed like you just lived at the school. And you were always just like doing, like had some new project <laughs> that you were doing, even if it was something not music related, like making Bon Appetit magazine worthy meringue pies. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was just like you always had like something that you were like just obsessed with for that moment and and I feel like maybe that's kind of that personality of yours kind of led you into maybe what you're doing now because that is such a kind of many faceted job right being a pastor I had a, a conversation with a pastor in Ohio when I was living up there who had basically told me at one point read anything and everything you can about any potential subject because you never know when it's going to be useful, you know, either for a sermon or you're, you know, you're just meeting up with somebody for like a pastoral visit and you find out that, you know, they are crazy about horses or something like that. And if you have some knowledge of, you know, horses or horseback riding or you know how to put horseshoes on a horse or something like just random, it gives you a way to connect. Can you just walk me through a day in the life <laughs> or or date or maybe like a week, you know, just as to, to what your tasks are and what your your goals are? A typical week would be looking different than basically every other week, I guess. Normally it will start out, you know, by, you know, figuring out whatever scripture I'm going to use. Normally we'll follow the lectionary, which is the three-year cycle that basically goes through every reading in the Bible. So I basically, you know, choose that. I do all of my research behind all of that. So basically anytime that you're preaching, for me, I have found that it's essentially like writing a short research paper, but writing it in a way that is able to communicate something. And, you know, just th throughout the week, I'll have various times when I do pastoral calls or meeting up with people. If there's a funeral, anytime that there are weddings, basically the things that are consistent are, you know, that you're probably going to be at church on Sunday, everything else. It's kind of sometimes it's just fly by the seat of your pants. You know, when there are emergencies at the church. We just had our entire septic system go out this past week. So that kind of, you know, changes, you know, if you have a set schedule, well, if you don't have running water or if you don't have, you know, restrooms for people to use at that moment, that's going to be a bit more important than writing your sermon out. Uh, the most consistent thing is in the inconsistency that happens. And I also have to balance that with, I do most of my pastoral work in the evening because, you know, I'm working uh, my full-time job teaching elementary music. Would you say that most pastors have another parallel job that they do, like a quote-unquote day job? Is it like being a musician? Yeah, it actually is um, a lot like being a, a musician in that sense. A lot of churches, because 
because they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, they're starting to realize, you know, we can't pay full time and with benefits and, you know, for housing or whatever it is that, you know, your contract stipulates. So for a lot of churches, they are going to part-time pastors, although that's a, an entirely different story as well. You know, what actually is the pastor's job doing the pastoral care or making sure that, you know, the bathrooms are running at the church. A lot of people have been, you know, burned by church. A lot of people have had, you know, they've been hurt, especially a lot of people in the LGBT community, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the focuses that I have in my ministry. And when I, you know, speak with people and I say, you know, yes, I am an LGBT pastor. People are just like, they have churches like that. Like that's, you know, I wish I would have had that church when I was younger. Maybe I would still be going to church, things like that. So there was, there's been a lot of damage that's done that has caused people to stay away from church. But at the same time, you know, Sunday is one of the days that people get to sleep in. And when you're working in a largely capitalist society where, you know, you have to work, 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 and you only have two days off, you know, some people would rather spend that time doing something else, which I totally understand. I would not have started going to church and playing at churches if I was not being paid for it. But my experience in the church has then just led me down a different path than a lot of people. But yeah, there, there's a general decline of church attendance. I've always been kind of a weird person in church because, you know, even in the most conservative churches, I've always been openly gay. And, you know, whatever comes with that comes with that, whatever. Uh, I've seen how the LGBT communities have been marginalized specifically by churches, by people who don't really have an understanding of some of the ancient scriptures that we use. Um, a lot of the words that have been translated to mean homosexual really don't have the same connotation as the word homosexual in contemporary society. And what is the word that's translated as homosexuality? Actually, about the six times that it's mentioned, mm -hmm. each one is pretty pretty much a different word. One of them is translated as pedestry or like men who would basically rape, you know, mm -hmm. other men or boys. A lot of times it was just considered shameful for a man to rape you. And, you know, if you were another man, especially another one was, you know, adultery. So there are different connotations to each one, but none of them represent a consensual homosexual relationship. When we sort of you know, go back and look at the Bible and we look at the course of how the Bible has shaped a lot of human history, because I mean, it's been a very influential book for a lot of human history, you know, recognizing that there have been, you know, misinterpretations, mistranslations that have then caused large parts of society to be ostracized and marginalized, you know, that's basically the antithesis of what Jesus's message is. You know, Jesus's was, message was always very inclusive of everybody. You know, if you ask certain people, you know, what the language of the original Bible is, you'll probably just get, oh, either Hebrew or Greek. And people don't realize that, well, yes, those are the two, you know, languages, but there are also bits of Aramaic in there. There are some other sacred texts that were written in, um, you know, a few other languages that have then influenced parts of the Bible. And there's a lot more to biblical history than your average 
Christian knows about. And there's a lot more about biblical history than your average Christian wants to know about, to be honest. But sort of changing some of the views of, you know, well, if you can't come to church, you know, if you're A, B, C, or D, when it's like, well, the Bible actually never says that. That's what really got me sort of started on my path to ministry, I guess. Can you give some maybe specific examples of misreadings that are kind of common? Yeah. So one that we have talked about in my Hebrew Bible class with my professor has been, you know, just the the two creation stories in Genesis. When the you know they had the uh, the second creation story where God created all of the animals, brought them to the man, and you know was like, oh, is this going to be the right match for the man, or is it not going to be? God basically went through almost any every single animal that there was, took it to the man and said, is this a good match? Is this not a good match? And eventually then had to create, you know, a partner for the first human. And just the word man right there, uh, if you've noticed me kind of not saying Adam, it's because the word Adam in Hebrew is not the name of the first person. The word Adam, uh, Adam in Hebrew is actually translated as humanity. So when it says God created Adam, well, God created humanity. And so if we look at the other story of the man and the woman eating from the tree, we've all been taught that, you know, the serpent is bad. The serpent is Satan. The serpent is the devil. Well, if you look at the story, God asks the man, you know, did you eat from the tree? And the man says, well, the woman told me to. And then God says to the woman, well, why, you know, do you eat from the tree? And well, well, the snake told me to. And then God, you know, turns to the serpent and says, you know, you're going to be cursed forever. But really, what did the serpent do but tell the truth? So the man and the woman didn't take accountability for their own actions. People will say, well, you know, the woman was punished with childbirth pains. Well, great. How was the man punished? Why wasn't the man punished? Oh, is it because the men held the power and, you know, everything could then be shifted onto everybody else's faults that men didn't have to take the blame for things? Well, yes. And if that's in the first, you know, three chapters of the Bible, how is that going to, you know, shape your interpretation for the rest of the Bible? And how much of that then creates misinterpretations from, you know, what was actually meant by some of the text? Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I'm just trying to think. So I thought that the serpent, uh, I didn't know that the serpent was punished because I thought that the serpent was simply Satan. So, and that's another place that there's kind of been reading something into the text that's not there. When it really comes down to it, Satan is not necessarily mentioned in the Bible by name. Satan is actually something that sort of came up between a lot of the First Testament writings and the Second Testament writings. But yeah, the name Satan actually comes from Hasatan, which actually just means the adversary. We can blame everything on this Satan um, and, you know, the demons and not necessarily have to take accountability for our own actions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what chapters two and three of Genesis are teaching us is you have to take accountability for your actions. Otherwise, you're going to have some trouble. Ah, so you you actually think that Adam and Eve were not expelled from Eden because they ate the apple of knowledge, but because they lied about it and blamed it on this this serpent. So I also am not a biblical literalist. So (laughs) I believe that, and well, in biblical literalism, I mean, that's 
only that's that's been a very recent thing, you know, throughout the history of the Bible, actually, as well, because a lot of the uh, ancient peoples understood that these are stories that we tell to teach people like Aesop's fables, you know, teach. But but that's also what I meant. I meant that like that was the moral of the story, that 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 was the within the logic of the story. The punishment was not for eating the apple or the, the fruit, because it wasn't even an apple, I think, in the in the original. Right. Yeah. But it was actually about lying and blaming it on the serpent. I don't want to uh, stake my claim on that's the only reason why they would have been picked out in the in the fable, um, or in the not in the fable in the story. But I think that you know that could also be a part of it. The important thing for the ancient Israelites wasn't necessarily the specific wording of the story. It was just that the story was taught. You know, and the story it was told. I'm sure that there are going to be people who listen who just say, well, he's just wrong. He's a heretic. He should be kicked out of church. Let's just defrock him, you know, come after him with pitchforks and, you know, flaming torches and stuff. And all right, great. So you obviously have a lot of faith in the Bible. You trust this as a very uh, important book in your life. Let's sit down and read it together and discuss it. And I don't think it's necessarily about being right or being wrong. Let's just look at what the actual wording is. Let's look as much at, at the original wording as we can. And then, you know, let's go from there. Let's have that discussion. But I'm, I'm sure that, you know, what I just said about the serpent not being Satan will probably not go over well in certain churches in America. And um, the story about uh, God bringing all the different animals to the man and, you know, trying to decide a partner that, you know, that goes uh, against the grain a little bit from the God created the perfect man and the perfect woman, and they were a perfect match from each other. And then Satan came in and screwed it all up. Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. <laughs> so. Well, I certainly hope people don't come after you with pitchforks on account of this podcast. <laughs> I would feel really awful about that. I mean, I feel like that you talk about this openly and people know what you think. I've listened to some of your sermons and you're very clear. I mean, you're not, you're not exactly a diplomat. That's something I really uh, appreciate, you know, that you're very clear about, about your principles here. I mean, the, the thing I got, at least from the ones that I listened to, was that you just don't believe that it should be in any person's hands to judge another person. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that that's, I mean, that to me, that, that kind of, if I were to boil down kind of what you, what we preach quite literally, mm -hmm. that would kind of be the, the core. Am I correct about that? Yeah. So there are generally three teachings that I really try to follow. The first one is don't, you know, don't judge. Like you said, the second one is Galatians 5, 14 that says, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a really important one that, you know, that's, you know, Jesus talked a little bit about love in his ministry and, you know, including people. Um, but the last one comes from Psalm 27, verse 13, that reads, and I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. When I first read that, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, it's one of those like happy, you know, oh, this is going to be so good. But the more that I think about it and the more that I realize, you know, let's say that you like if you were to ask me a question and I was just like, well, that was a really rude question. But you were like, I didn't mean for it to be rude. What I try to do and how I try to live is, okay, I believe that you are asking out of goodness. So I generally try to, you know, see the best in people which has caused some issues. I will be open about that. I just try to love everybody equally and just say, you know what? Hey, whatever you're going through, that's what you're going through. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to sit with you. 
I forgot to ask, just to double back a little bit, about this story about bringing the animals to Adam. What do you think that means? Because I'm very confused about what the what the, me- the the allegory aspect of it. What is it supposed to mean? So, if you were one of those people with your pitchforks and your flames, get ready. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> not going to go well. When I now, when I go back and read this, I start thinking mostly of our transgender siblings. You may have been born, you know, with a certain biological gender. That doesn't mean that that's where your story is supposed to end. Like, let's say I was created to be a man. I still identify as, you know, I identify as that. That's where I feel like I'm, you know, who I'm supposed to be. But, you know, at one point I also thought that I was meant to be straight. Well, you know, that obviously, obviously that has changed a bit. (laughs) Um, And so I think that, you know, that story kind of could be a sort of um, story to help understand that just because you were created one way and, you know, that's where your path was, what what your path was supposed to be at the beginning doesn't mean that that's where it's going to end. Uh, Actually, after I gave that sermon, I had one of the retired pastors who came up to me and said, you know, about 50 years ago, or if you go down the street to one of these other churches, you probably would have been chased out of the church for saying that. Whether or not that's what that story actually means, that's what that story means to me. And what it means to somebody else is, you know, what it means to somebody else. And um, I'm open to hearing about that, but I'm less open to hearing about that if you're not going to be open to hearing about what I'm trying to say. I mean, the, the way you talk about this is so, in some ways, so familiar to me because I grew up with a, a writer father and around like English departments and stuff. And actually, I think it, it's remiss not to realize that the whole legacy of looking at a text in the Western tradition really comes from studying the Bible. This idea that you re- read closely and you and you look for the underlying meaning or hidden meaning, or or you in, in some ways create new meanings based on what you want to say. But then it also just makes me think of when you're studying some book in like high school English or something, and the author writes, you know, the curtains were blue, and your teacher says, oh, well, that's symbolic of his depression or of, you know, this. So we might be assigning meaning to things that just <laughs> were sort of, oh, yeah, blue curtains. All right, moving on. Like, so. <laughs> I feel that way about a lot of literary criticism. (laughs) I think a lot of it is reading tea leaves, honestly. It is December, and there's a reason why I'm interviewing you in December, because I thought it would be cool to connect it to the one holiday that so many people, even those who don't go to church, actually know anything about. Are there any myths that you think need to be dispelled about this holiday? Because I... I know it wasn't until quite recently such a such an important supposedly Christian holiday. Two that I can just think of off the top of my head. First of all, the 12 days of Christmas do not happen until after Christmas. <laughs> it is not 12 days before. It is 12 days after Christmas. It goes from Christmas to Epiphany. Those are the 12 days of Christmas. It is Christmas tide. It is a separate season. We are in Advent. We are not in Christmas. <laughs> um, the second one is... Christmas is not the most important Christian holiday. That would be Easter. If you did not have Easter, you would not have Christendom. Without the resurrection story that happens, you know, on a Good Friday, your Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and, and at Easter, you wouldn't even have Christmas. We wouldn't even be celebrating Christmas, I guess. You know, well, who knows how the world works? We could still be celebrating it or Saturnalia or whatever other holiday was celebrated by, you know, the Romans at this time. But I, I would think that those 
two are probably oh then the third one the wise men did not show up at the nativity scene <laughs> number one it would have taken them a few years probably to get there and there were probably more than three of them just the whole timeline of jesus's birth is a myth the timeline of the birth is a myth there was a, a holiday by the roman or a pagan holiday oh, okay right around this time so it was sort of taken over because the church councils or whomever were, were deciding what the important days were were like well they're already celebrating so we'll just you know say that it's about the celebration about this no I, i've heard about this this phenomenon where the church was so intent on trying to get all these pagans who just loved their religion because <laughs> it sounded kind of fun to be honest yeah. to try to sort of graft on uh christian ideas onto it and then it just kind of yeah. uh, stuck um, and that christians is definitely one of those what is your take on the whole immaculate conception thing, dare I ask? <laughs> um, you know what? I, I, I have not really thought about it, you know, a, a huge amount. I still have the sort of uh, Christmas traditions that I, you know, grew up with. You know, she was uh, the Virgin Mary and, you know, immaculate conception, you know, all that stuff that I'm just like, no, oh, that does make a really cute story, you know? <laughs> But I mean, the word virgin, that's also been another mistranslation. Now it means, you know, somebody who hasn't had sex. But back then it was just a young girl. That kind of answers it, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, I still like to hold on to, no, it was the Immaculate Conception. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. But then in my mind, I'm just like, really? Really? Is that what that was? <laughs> so, um, you know, some people will just say, well, you just don't have enough faith. Well, then I don't have enough faith. But you know what? The Bible still says I'm all good because I will question. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's funny because I was christened when I was uh, three, but it was like a drive through wedding in Las Vegas because it was after 89 <laughs> and yeah. the Republic, but after, you know, uh, the Christianity was suppressed here, any kind of religion. And so they were just giving out baptisms just, just without any, like to anyone, just walk in, you know, and yeah. no one explained to me what it was, what was mm -hmm. happening. And, and it, my mom took her best gay friend to the church <laughs> And me, three years old, didn't explain a damn thing to me. Excuse my language. And, and I was horrified. I was running away the whole time into the pews. And the idea of this strange man, the priest, putting some water on my head was just terrifying to me. Just mm -hmm. terrifying. Unlike the Poles, where, who are very, very, very Catholic and kind of conservative, the Czechs are extremely, tend to be extremely atheist. So my mother was like cursing in the church because I was running away into the pews. But this is all to say that like, I'm, it, it feels so f cool that I can like ask you all these questions that I had even as a kid having sort of just bits and pieces of this religion. Uh, so, and so that brings me to one of the questions was, if Mary was a virgin, like, why did she have a husband? There's that joke where Jesus had two fathers and turned out fine. Um, that's <laughs> a, a gay marriage uh, support joke. But 
Well, what actually happens in the scripture is Mary was betrothed to Jesus. So she, you know, she had not married him yet. And no, betrothed uh, to, to Joseph. To, to Joseph, not Jesus. Oh, wow. That would have been a terrible mistake to make. Oh, it's like an Oedipus story now. So she was betrothed to Joseph and Joseph was after, you know, he'd found out that she was pregnant. He was going to dismiss her because that was a shameful thing back then. And he would have also been shamed, you know, for letting his wife then, you know, come into the marriage pregnant. So it wasn't until the uh, the angel went to Joseph and was just like, no, dude, chill. Like, this was an immaculate conception that he was just like, OK, yeah, you know, so get married and you also take care of her. And so, I mean, I guess part of part of the thing could be, well, you know, did Jesus need like an earthly father as well as an earthly mother you know what maybe there's more of a story here than i had thought because joseph was a carpenter and jesus talks frequently about building the kingdom and you know he's the you know jesus of nazareth who was also a carpenter i mean to me it's a very kind of nice message that it doesn't matter who uh, jesus's father was that the point is that he had a father who was there with him growing up and who taught him yeah. things and the fact that maybe he wasn't his quote-unquote biological father really shouldn't matter because that's not what fatherhood is. It's being there, yeah. There are a lot of pastors who I believe if they were truly preaching what they thought about the Bible, they would be kicked out of churches because a lot of pastors do not necessarily believe in the Immaculate Conception, do not... There are some pastors who are leading churches who don't even believe the resurrection was an actual event. But their job as a spiritual guide is to help other people think about those beliefs, reconcile with those beliefs, and, you know, see what God is calling them to do in their lives. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, what do you have to believe in in order to be a Christian? My ultimate goal is to treat other people how Jesus calls me to treat other people. And that is what makes me a Christian. Not the fact that, you know, I pray, not the fact that I'm a pastor, not the fact that I believe in Jesus, the death and resurrection. Those things do not make me a Christian. How I interact with other people in within following the footsteps of Christ, that's what makes me a Christian. That's kind of scary in the sense that even people who believe very literally in the Bible who then wouldn't be Christians, according to your description. I, I was just studying a Native American theology class this past summer, and one of the things that really struck me is how quickly the westernized world will say, oh, well, that's not a Christian, or oh, that person isn't really part of our group where from the different books that I had read for the course, if there is somebody within a Native American community who either, you know, acts differently than the rest of them, who believes differently than the rest of them, who treats people differently than the rest of them, it's not, oh, well, they're not, you know, part of the community. It's just, oh, you know, they just, they're just different. They're just different than we are. That's not a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It is just what it is. And so with me for, you know, Christianity, I've been trying to adapt that more into my thinking. Um, and I used to be very much, well, if you say that, you can't be a Christian. But then I realized I'm putting my standards of Christianity onto somebody else. How do I know that that person has not been called by the divine to act a certain way? What is that state of spiritual balance that you try to help people with? How would you describe that? What are its 
characteristics. I believe a lot of our spirituality does come from when we are creating things. Mm -hmm. Um, Whatever that looks like for you, you're building a model car, great. You're working on a real life car to bring it back to work, you know, whatever you're passionate about creating. um, I believe that's one of the reasons why you know, the whole opening of the Bible talks about creation and says, you know, God created and God called it good. Because when we're creating, we're generally happy or we're generally getting some type of release. And it's a good thing. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. That hymn has a very tragic story. I'm not sure if you know it, where the man who wrote it, his wife, and I believe both of his daughters, I believe he had two daughters, they were on a ship called the Ville de Havre, and it was making a transatlantic journey, and the the ship sank, and both of his daughters died. And I believe his wife made it, and then, you know, sent him a message being like, I made it, you know, everybody else has passed. And so then when he was making the trip himself, the captain of his ship came and said, you know, this is where the ship went down. And so in that moment of distress, then he created one of the most well-known and well-loved hymns, It Is Well With My Soul. And in that moment, although there was a lot of tragedy and there was a lot of sadness in that, out of that creation came so much good. And out of that creation came so much spirituality, not just for him, but for so many generations after. I I think a lot of spirituality, at least for me personally, comes down to creation. And that's kind of where I try to help guide other people. It is well. It is well. What is your take on music and spirituality in general? Music is a very spiritual thing, obviously. When I speak with congregants or other people about what they remember from church growing up it's always oh well we sang blah 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 hymn or oh my grandma's favorite hymn was blah 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 it wasn't oh you know pastor so-and-so gave a great christmas eve sermon um it's just like oh i remember we sang all the christmas carols at you know christmas eve service or you know those types of things there's the old adage you know those who sing pray twice so I realized, you know, throughout the day, you know, I'll just be kind of walking and I'll just be like, oh, mighty fortresses are just singing just randomly and just like, OK, where did that come from? And so it's just one of those things that it just kind of creeps into my spirituality, whether I want it to or not. That's where I feel that I encounter um, the divine presence most. I hope you enjoyed that convo. If you want to keep up with Mike's journey as a pastor, he has a blog called GayByTheGraceOfGod.com where he hopes to be posting more regularly in the future. No matter the time of year, I hope you find some time to rest. Here's to being on the verge 